Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Verses 9 through 14, a parable by Jesus, a powerful little parable meant to shake up his hearers. That's usually what a parable is. It's a little story that packs a punch. And that's what Jesus does. So let's read together Luke 18, 9 through 14 as we dive right in this morning to the scriptures. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Jesus is telling a little parable to who? To those who trusted in themselves. Now let's just stop right there. Those who trusted in themselves. It's a strong word in the original language, which means that these people have come to the strong conviction. They've been thoroughly persuaded. They've come to the conclusion that they don't need a Savior. They have trusted in themselves. And not only that, they look with contempt upon other people. They are puffed up with pride, and they don't want anything to do with these so-called sinners. Now, at first glance, everybody in this room is probably thinking in your heart right now, that's not me. I don't trust in myself. I'm not trusting in myself. I don't look upon others with contempt. I'm trusting in Jesus. Thank goodness he's not talking about me, but he's talking about the Pharisees. Now, before you get too comfortable, let's see what happens. There are two men in this story, two men that are diametrically opposed in all, in all aspects of life. You have the tax collector and you have the Pharisee. Now the Pharisee was a religious leader. He was one that liked to be seen by others. He knew his Bible. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He was a very religious, devout man. He was an upright citizen. On the other hand, you have a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were really considered the scum of the earth during that culture. They worked for the dreaded Roman Empire. They would also extort some money. They they would keep some money back for themselves. They would be like the drug dealers, the gangsters, whatever type of, of scum type of person you think about in our culture. That's what a tax collector was. And yet, where are these two men? They are in the same place. They are in the temple. Now, we're not told the details of the story, but it could be that the, that the Pharisees closest to the Holy of Holies in the temple. He's closest to that place where God is. And in the typical way of Jewish praying, he probably raised his hands to heaven. He probably looked up and he began to pray out loud. 
Some translations say he prays to himself. Now, what do we find out about this Pharisee through his prayer? First of all, we find out he's very moral. Notice what he says. I'm not like other men. I love my wife. I'm not an adulterer. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't um, do bad things. I'm fair in my business dealings. He's a good, upright, all-American citizen who plays by the rules. And what's even scarier is he's not an atheist. Actually, this Pharisee believes in the sovereignty of God. Notice what he says. I thank God that I'm not like these other people. He gave proper credit to God as the giver of all things. He was very religious. And then notice what else he says. Not only is he very moral, but he's also very religious. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, the law only required you to fast once a year. On the Day of Atonement, you fasted once a year. But he says, I fast twice a week. And I give all that I have off of my, or I tithe on all that I, that I make. And so at first glance, you're looking at this Pharisee and you're probably thinking, this guy would be a good leader in our church. He loves his wife. He's moral. He pays his taxes. He's an upright citizen. He knows his Bible. He goes to church. He probably does his daily quiet time. He gives his tithes. He gives his money. He helps the poor. This is a good guy. Now think about those that are originally listening to Jesus, his original audience. They've already made up in their minds who the good guy is. They're probably thinking to themselves, it's got to be the Pharisee. He's the good guy. He, he, he does all these religious things. He's very religious. He's very moral. This is the good guy in the story. Tax collector, bad guy in the story. Now notice the tax collector. What's he doing? Verse 13. He's standing far off. Now, why is this important? He's standing at a distance. Probably just one foot in the temple to be close enough to God, but he's not going to dare barge into God's presence. He knows his place. He's desperate. He's guilty. He understands that he's not just going to barge into God's presence. He's at a distance. Now, the typical way of praying in the Jewish, in the Jewish way was with your hands up, looking to heaven. What does he do? Head down. And what's he doing? He's beating his breast incessantly. A cry of anguish, a cry of pain, a a type of contrition. And then we have the prayer of this man. His words are few, but notice what he prays. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. God, be merciful to me, The sinner. Most of your English translations don't include the sinner, but really it says the sinner. He's not a sinner. He considers himself the sinner. I am the sinner. And notice what he asks God to do. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, in your original language here, this is where translation becomes very important. Let me translate this to you literally, how it's translated in the original Greek text. Lord, propitiate me, the sinner. Did that help you out? You're probably like, what in the world does propitiate me mean? Here's what it means. God, in your mercy, please turn aside your wrath. Please turn aside your anger. Please turn aside your judgment. I know I deserve wrath. 
I know I am guilty. I know I am condemned. Turn it aside. Get rid of your wrath against me. Now, here's a question. Can a holy, righteous, powerful, just God just get rid of wrath like that? Can he just brush our sin under the cosmic carpet and not deal with it? Can God just say, okay, your sins are forgiven and not have a payment? Does God's wrath and anger against sin have to be appeased? Does it have to be paid for? Does it have to be dealt with? Absolutely it has to be dealt with. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. Now obviously Jesus is telling this story before he goes to the cross, but this tax collector understands something. He understands something about the substitutionary nature of what is required in taking away his guilt and his sin. He says, God, take away, my, take away your wrath against me. God, place your wrath on someone else, a substitute. And that's what Jesus Christ did. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the anger of God. He absorbed the justice of God. He paid the penalty that we deserved in our place. And so this tax collector is saying, God, the only way I know my sins are going to be forgiven is if you place all of that justice justice on someone else and not on me. God, propitiate me, the sinner. God, turn aside your wrath away from me, the sinner. Now here's the shocker. The original audience is probably thinking to themselves, here you have this moral, good, upright Pharisee doing everything religious, everything moral, surely God is going to accept the Pharisee because of what he's done. Just look at his resume. All the things the Pharisee lists off, God is going to accept this holy, righteous, moral, upstanding citizen. He's been a faithful church member. He gives to the poor. He tithes. And then here you have off in the distance this blithering idiot over here crying and beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me. Now here's the stinger. Who actually gets accepted by God in the story. Who's actually declared not guilty? Who actually walks away having peace with God? It's not the good guy. It's not the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. Listen to the words of Jesus in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. He was justified. That means he was accepted by God. His record was wiped clean. He was declared innocent. He was forgiven because he trusted in Christ alone for mercy. And and surprisingly, the Pharisee doesn't get accepted by God. Notice it says, rather than the other. The Pharisee doesn't go home accepted by God. Why? Because he trusted in himself. Trusting in yourself leads to damnation. Trusting in Christ leads to salvation. It's very similar to the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now why do I start this message today with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me ask you a question. Is this parable good news or bad news? If you're the Pharisee, bad news. If you are trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in your own morality, if you're trusting in your own goodness, if you're trusting in what you can give to God, guess what? You do not go home today 
justified. You do not leave this place accepted by God. You do not leave this place forgiven. You do not leave this place being the, having the assurance of heaven. You don't go home with your sins forgiven. If you are trusting in yourselves, it is bad news, just like the Pharisee. But it's good news if you see yourself like the tax collector. If you see yourself as the sinner. I am the sinner. And I deserve nothing but wrath. I deserve nothing but condemnation. And all I can do is beat my breast and call upon God to have mercy upon me. And I'm going to cast myself upon the mercy of Christ to save me by his grace alone. Then, when you trust in Christ, you go home accepted by God. You go home justified. You go home with your sins forgiven. You go home with the wrath removed. You go home with peace. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? If I were to go out in Sterling today or northeastern Colorado and ask people on the streets, what's the gospel? Some people might say, well, that's that kind of music, isn't it? Gospel music? Uh, It's something about asking Jesus into your heart, but I'm not quite sure. I have no idea what is the gospel. I really don't know. The Lord has placed a burning desire and passion in my heart that we as a church and we as individuals never lose sight of the gospel. The gospel. It's central to who we are as a church. It shapes everything that we do, everything that we think. We should never lose our appreciation, our love, our understanding of the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? It simply means good news. It's an announcement of good news of what God has done for us. The gospel is not advice. It's not a suggestion. It's not even something that you're to do. It's something that is announced to us of what God has done. It would be like this. It would be like a headline on the Denver Post or a headline on the Journal Advocate or a Yahoo banner or an MSN banner or or something that comes across your smartphone that says, war is over. Or so-and-so's been elected as president. If you go back to World War II and you look at those newspapers that came out at the end of the war, they said, war is over. They weren't telling you to do something. They weren't giving you suggestion. They were announcing something that had already happened. It was news. And so the gospel is good news that God saves sinners. And so over the next few weeks, what I want us to do is focus on the centrality of the gospel. What's our mission statement as a church? We exist to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and disciple for God's great commission. The second component there is that we are to declare God's gospel. And that's more than just evangelism. A lot of times when you hear, let's just share the gospel, we automatically think evangelism. Let me just say that, yes, that includes that, but let me just give my argument to you from the very beginning. The gospel is for Christians. It is our anchor. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. There's a great book of prayers by the Puritans called Valley of Vision. As a matter of fact, some of the songs we sing are influenced by the Valley of Vision. They're powerful, deep little prayers. I encourage you to find this book and meditate on the prayers. But let me let you listen to one of the prayers that comes from the Valley of Vision. Holy Trinity, continue to teach me that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice and evidences your love. Help me to make use of it by faith as the ground of my peace and of your favor and acceptance of me so that I may live always 
near the cross. That's what we want to do. We want to always live near the cross. So the gospel permeates our thinking. The gospel permeates our heart. The gospel permeates every aspect of our lives. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore how does the gospel affect our lives? Next week, what is gospel repentance? What is gospel-centered worship? What does gospel-centered praying look like? How does the gospel affect relationships with one another? How does gospel affect our ministry, how we serve one another in the church? How does the gospel affect our mission as a church? How does the gospel intersect into every aspect of our lives, both corporately as a church and individually as a Christian? How do we live out the implications of the gospel? But before we do that, we need to clearly understand the reality of what the gospel is. And so what I'm going to do for this morning, for the remainder of this morning, I want to give three foundational texts. Three foundational scriptures that are going to anchor us over the next few weeks. These texts, these scriptures, really articulate for us what the gospel is. There's a lot of confusion out there what the gospel is, but we're going to look at these three passages of scripture that teach us the gospel. So here's the first one, probably the most important. This discusses the historical content of the gospel. So I'm going to have you be turning a little bit this morning. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This is our first foundational text. This is the historical content of the gospel. But Paul says something very important here that I want us to not miss in relationship with the gospel. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is our first foundational text. So let's read this together. Hopefully everybody's gotten there by now. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says this is of first importance. This is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. And notice he calls this the gospel. He says this was the gospel that you received in verse 1, but also in which you stand. You are standing in the gospel. It's in a tense in the original language that means that you stood in it when you first received it, but you continue to stay standing in it even to this point and to the present. So we are standing on the foundation of the gospel. The gospel is what saves us. The gospel is what gets us to heaven. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's of first importance. Paul says, I preached this to you. You received it. You're standing in it. Believe it. This is the heart of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, according to the scriptures. And notice what he says. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And let me just say this. Salvation is more than just a one time decision that you check off the card and say, I've done that. Yes, there was a point in time where you trusted Christ for salvation, but as a Christian, you are continually 
believing in Jesus. You are continually repenting of your sins. You're continually standing in His grace. And so the first foundational text is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to the Scriptures, the most important thing Paul could tell us, that is the gospel. Now, here's the second foundational text. This speaks about the inherent power of the gospel. Romans 1.16, it'll be on your screen. You're probably very familiar with this passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, what is it? The gospel is the power of God. For what? For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. A gospel-centered church is not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed to present it, to preach it, to declare it. Why? Because it has power. The gospel has the power to save everyone who believes. Now, there's a lot of messages we could share. There's a lot of things we can preach and teach. And you guys know that, that we preach through a lot of books of the Bible. We preach the whole counsel of God's word. But sometimes it's important to get back to the main thing, and that is the gospel, because that is where the power is. Some people say when you become a Christian, we need to move on to deeper things. Let's just move on to deeper things. I can't think of anything deeper than the implications of the gospel when you actually start to think about what Christ has done for us. We get off on tangents. Let's just, all we do is creationism. All we do is end times. All we do is the latest and greatest from some book or some televangelist. And we get off on all these tangents and we don't get back to the gospel. A few years ago, our men went through Jerry Bridges' book, the gospel for real life, which I encourage you to read. The gospel is for Christians. Let me, let me read to you his words. He says this, Why do so many believers live in quiet desperation? Does that describe you, quiet desperation? One answer is that we have a truncated or a wrong view of the gospel. We tend to see it as the door we walk through to become Christians. In this view, the gospel is for unbelievers. Once you become a Christian, you don't need it anymore, except to share with people who are still outside the door. What you need to hear instead now are challenges and how-to discipleship. The reality of present-day Christianity is that most professing Christians actually know very little of the gospel, let alone understand its implications for their day-to-day lives. My perception is that most of them know just enough gospel to get inside the door of the kingdom. They know nothing of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so as Christians, we need to hear the gospel over and over again. And sometimes you may think, Sean sounds like a broken record up here because he's always talking about the gospel. Yes. We need to hear it over and over again. Why? We are prone to do what? Wander. Come thou fount of every blessing. That song says, Lord, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander as Christians. Where do we wander? We wander off the center of the gospel. You wander into two areas, two bad areas. One area you wander into is legalism. You begin to think that it's all my performance, everything I do, it's all about pulling myself up by my bootstraps, trying to earn God's approval, trying to do this list of do's and don'ts, trying really hard to be acceptable to God by my behavior. God loves me based upon how well I do the trap of legalism. That's one place that we're prone to wander. The gospel says, no, don't go that way. Don't go down the path of legalism. 
The other place we're prone to wander is what I call guilt or, or condemnation or despair where you feel like I'm not good enough. God could never forgive me. I, I'm depressed. I'm frustrated. I can never live up to God's standards. I, I'm over here wondering if I've sinned beyond reach. Does God really love me? Does God really care about me? Have I gone beyond his grasp? Have I lost my salvation? Does God love me? Both of these are wrong. Legalism and despair are both opposites of the gospel. The gospel centers us and says, no, God loves you. God accepts you based upon Christ. It's not based upon your performance. And you obey God. You worship God. You serve God, not out of fear, not out of desperation, not out of legalism. You serve God because you love him because of what he's done for you. And he loves you. In other words, let me just say this. The gospel keeps us sane. Keeps you sane. Because if not, you're going to be in this performance trap, always trying to earn God's approval and never feeling like you live up to it. Or you're going to be over here spiring into guilt and shame and fear, wondering if God loves you. And both of those are going to drive you crazy. The gospel gets you back to center and says, no, God loves you based upon Christ. He accepts you based upon Christ. Now here is our third foundational text. First text, 1 Corinthians, it's the, the content of the gospel. The second, Romans 1.16, the power of the gospel. Here's what I call the gospel in a nutshell. If there's that passage of scripture that packs in in maybe three or four verses, the gospel, we've got that in Titus. So let's turn to Titus. Now you may not know where Titus is. It's after 2 Timothy, right before Philemon. And if you didn't know where Philemon was, well, most people don't because it's really short. Titus. It's on page 998, if you want to know where it's at. Titus chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Because it is the gospel in a nutshell. It tells us what God has done for us in Christ, and it packs a punch. So let's read Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is a mountain of doctrine in those three verses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you seven gospel declarations. I don't often do this. And not because seven's a magical number, but because they show up in the text. These are going to be on the screen. And this may be helpful for you to write these down. I'll try to go slow. But these gospel declarations are to help us preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And when I say preach the gospel to ourselves every day, I don't mean stand up behind the pulpit and say, Thus saith the Lord, Sean Cole, you are a Christian. I'm not talking about that. Now maybe some wacky person does that. What I'm saying is in your prayer life, in your Bible reading, in your thought life, you are just daily reminding yourself of what the gospel says about you. You're reminding yourself. You're putting these things before you. You're soaking them into your mind. You're letting them delve into your heart. You're letting them soak into the way that you think because when your thinking is affected by the gospel, it affects everything else. So let me give you these seven gospel declarations and you can use these as ways to help you preach the gospel to yourself. Way to keep yourself sane, okay? So if you want to be sane, here's the seven ways to stay sane. 
First of all, the gospel tells me of my former identity as an enslaved sinner before trusting Christ. The key word there is former identity. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. For we ourselves were, what's the word there? Once. We were once foolish. We were once disobedient. We were once led astray. We were once slaves. We were once hating one another. Paul says our former identity was one of being enslaved, being lost, being dead, being against God. And the gospel says that's my former identity, but now I have a new identity. I have a new identity. In other words, I am no longer dead. I am no longer enslaved. I'm no longer lost. I am new. And so here's how to preach your gospel to yourself. When you start to beat yourself up, just think about the fact that that's who I once was. I don't have to do these things anymore because that's not my nature. This is who I once was. I am now a new person. I am now a Christian. I'm not that person anymore. God has saved me out of that sin. And so you can praise Jesus and say, praise you, Jesus, that you've taken me out of the kingdom of darkness and you've brought me into the kingdom of light. You've rescued me, Jesus, from the pit from which I was once living in. Praise you, Jesus, that that's not who I am any longer. Now, there's a great word there in verse 4. But. But. That's the transition. What has God done for us in the gospel? Here's gospel declaration number two. The gospel tells me that God's awesome mercy and love have come to me personally through Jesus Christ. God's awesome mercy and love have come personally to me through Jesus Christ. Notice what he says there. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Here's how you preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus, thank you that you love me. Your mercy is overwhelming. You are a God of love. You are a God of mercy. You've showered this mercy upon me. Thank you that it's appeared. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Thank you that it's come personally to me. Thank you, God, that you love me, that you're merciful to me, that, you, that you've showered me with your loving kindness. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. Here's a third gospel declaration. The gospel tells me that salvation is all of grace and nothing that in any way I can contribute it's all of grace. I don't bring anything to the table. I don't contribute to the equation at all. I am dead. I am lost. I'm a sinner. God shows me grace. He saves me by grace alone. Notice what he says there in verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's not what we do that saves us. It's because of God's great mercy. It's all of grace. And so here's a little news flash that we need to remember. On your best day, when you're doing everything great, your quiet time's going great, and you're witnessing, and you're doing the best that you can, and on the worst day when you're failing miserably, and you're having a really bad day, and you're not obeying God, guess what, Christian? God loves you the same. His love for you does not change based upon your performance. He doesn't love you more when you're doing good and he doesn't love you less when you're doing bad. When you are a Christian, he loves you, period, based upon the finished work of Christ and you can rest in the fact that God's love for you is 
constant. It's not based upon your performance. Now, that's not an excuse to go out and disobey, but it's a reminder that God's love for us is constant. Here's the fourth gospel declaration. The gospel tells me that I've been born again as a new creation in Christ. Look at verse 6. I mean, look at the, look at the end of verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. That's just another way of saying God has caused us to be born again. God has washed our hearts. God has taken out that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. God has caused us to be born again. God has given us a new heart. He's breathed new life into us. We are a new creation in Christ. We are born again. And so how you preach the gospel to yourself is, thank you, God, that you've regenerated me. You've taken out my old heart. You've caused me to be born again. You've given me new life. I am your child now. Thank you that you've washed me through regeneration. Now here's the fifth gospel declaration. The gospel tells me that God has richly given me the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is very important. God has given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Notice the very end of verse five. Uh, verse, um, five. By washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God has given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. So we have the power, we have the grace, we have the ability to live the gospel-centered life, we have the ability to love, we have the ability to live. God just didn't leave us as orphans to, to live the life in our own power. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And so when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we say, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live inside me. You give me the strength, you give me the power, you give me the help, you are the comforter. I can't live this life by myself. Thank you that you are my power, Holy Spirit. Here's the sixth gospel declaration. The gospel tells me that I am totally accepted by God and have an innocent record before him. Oh, that we would understand this. Notice what verse 7 says. So that being justified by his grace. That's all that justification means. Justified simply means that our record has been wiped clean. Our guilt has been taken away. Our sins have been forgiven. We are declared not guilty. We are innocent before God, not because of anything that we've done, but because of Christ's righteousness that's been credited to us. And so we have the record of acceptance. God accepts you as a Christian because of the record of Christ. And because of the record of Christ, your record of guilt is totally wiped clean. It's not based upon your performance. I can't tell you how many Christians I know either trapped up in legalism or trapped up in despair, and it drives you crazy. Settle in your heart this morning that if you are a Christian, God accepts you on the record of Christ. Your record is wiped clean. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You don't have to win brownie points with God. He's already accepted you because of the blood of Christ. Now here's the seventh and final gospel declaration. The gospel tells me I have the hope of eternal life. The very last part of verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Remind yourself daily, this is not my home. I do not live here. 
I'm just passing through. My true home is in heaven. My eyes are fixed on heaven. God has promised me heaven. I have the assurance of heaven. The trials that I go through here are just passing and fleeting. My true home, my true citizenship is in heaven. God is going to ensure that I get there. I have an inheritance waiting for me. I have the hope of heaven. So, we need to let these truths sink down into our souls. These gospel truths, these gospel declarations. But there's one final word about the gospel, and it should be pretty obvious by now. There's nothing more precious than the gospel. Listen to Paul's words. This is Paul's mission statement for his life. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says this, But I do not account my life of of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. To do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You hear Paul's heart here? My life's a huge waste. My life amounts to nothing. What my driving passion is in finishing the race, what my driving passion in my life was the most precious thing to me, what I count as a supreme value, Paul says, is to be able to testify, to be able to tell others, to be able to declare the gospel of what? Grace. Let me just ask you a very simple question this morning. What is grace? What is grace? Here's the definition of grace. A lot of people say we are undeserving sinners, right? We're undeserving. Is that biblical? We are not undeserving. That means we don't deserve anything. We are ill-deserving. What do we deserve? Wrath, hell, judgment, condemnation, eternal separation from God. We all deserve that. But God, in his great riches of mercy, stoops down to us and says, I'm going to choose to love rebels who've disobeyed me time and time again, and I'm going to shower them with mercy. I'm going to shower them with grace. I'm going to save them. I'm going to wipe their record clean. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to give them grace. And by the way, grace is not grace if God is obligated to give it. If God were obligated to give you grace, it would cease to be grace because it would be something that God would be obligated to give you. And God is not obligated to give us anything. He gives us grace because he simply gives us grace because of his infinite love for sinners. It's the message of the gospel, the gospel of grace. And so over the next few weeks, my prayer is that we would allow the gospel to shape how we think about issues like repentance. Issues like prayer, issues like worship, issues like relationships. All these things would come together under the banner of the gospel. Now, I say this often from this pulpit. I will say it again. I say it a lot. So you probably sound like Sean sounds like a broken record. But here's the, here's the final plea. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. A lot of places we can look in this world. We look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the Father on his throne in heaven. So over the next few weeks, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and let's truly, here's my prayer as a church. Here's what my prayer is, that we would be blown away 
by the grace of God. Do you want that? Or are you just content to go through life and, yeah, that's the gospel. Sean's talking about another thing. Yeah, we're going to go this and that. And do, do you really want to be staggered when you walk out of here by the grace of God? That's my prayer, that we'd walk out of this place and we would be like, oh my goodness. God's grace is so amazing. God's grace is so powerful. I've been so energized by God's grace. Thank you, God, for showing up in power. Thank you for meeting us as a church. Thank you for coming to this place and showing us your grace. God, we, don't, we can't get enough of this grace. It's amazing. That's my prayer over the next few weeks, that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we'd be gospel-centered, and we truly understand his amazing grace. Let me ask you to pray this morning. Bow your heads with me. There may be many of you here this morning that you have no idea what I'm talking about. You've never experienced the grace of God the very first time. You never have humbled yourself before this great God and said, have mercy on me, the sinner. You've never admitted that you are a sinner. You've never confessed and acknowledged that you need a Savior. And maybe you're trusting in yourself or you're trying to do things to earn God's approval and you're in this performance trap and and you know in your heart of hearts that it's just wearing you out. You're frustrated, you're lost, you have no idea where it's leading, but you're hoping, you're just hoping, you're crossing your fingers that maybe one day God will let you into heaven because you've lived a good life. May I just say very honestly that that does not lead to life, that leads to death. And the only way to have freedom, true freedom, is by waving the white flag of surrender, bowing your knees before King Jesus and saying, I give up. I come to you alone, Jesus. Please save me. Please forgive me. Please wipe my record clean. I trust in you. I can't do this. I need you. Maybe there's many in the room, in this room for the very first time you're crying out to Jesus in your heart, Lord Jesus, please save me. I'm no longer trusting in myself. I'm trusting in you. And the promise from the Bible is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ will save those who call upon him for salvation. So there may be some of you in this room that need to do that even right now. For the rest of us who have trusted Christ for salvation, sometimes for us the gospel gets stale, it gets old, it gets passe, and we want to move on to deeper things. May we never move on from the centrality of the gospel in our lives and in our hearts. The amazing grace of what God has done for us. So in the quietness of this moment, would you just go before the Lord in a few moments of silent prayer and engage Jesus. Whatever that looks for you, spend time engaging Him, speaking to Him, talking to Him, pleading with Him.
Father, we come before you this morning. And we want to tell you how much we do truly love you. It would be a shame for us to come to a worship service like this and not tell you that we love you. And the only way we can tell you that we love you is because you first loved us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the cross of Christ that frees us from all sin. Thank you for the Holy Spirit to live in us to give us the power. And Lord, we know that worship is a response to truth. And we've heard the truth this morning, Jesus, about how powerful you are to save and what you've done in your grace and mercy. And sometimes in a worship service, Jesus, we want to do something for you. We want to raise our hands higher or sing louder or, or somehow give you our all. But Lord, I'm just led in this moment to not... Maybe we don't need to give you anything. We just need to receive from you. shows that we're weak, that we're dependent. God, you don't need anything. You don't need us. You don't even need this worship service to be God. You exist without the praises of your people, and you're happy in that. But we need you. We desperately need you. We need your power. We need your strength. We need your presence. We need the cross. We need the gospel. So my prayer is that we would just receive this morning. We're so wired to think about what we can do, but Lord, maybe we just need to receive by faith the grace that you give. I'm going to have the praise team just sing through this song, Hail to the King. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you just to not necessarily sing this to the Lord, but receive the words and receive the grace of Christ this morning. Be a receiver of what God has for you this morning in an attitude of prayer and of, and of humility.